Um, we have been going through the book of Colossians, and each week we get to hear our passage for the day read for, from one of our church members. And so Sammy is going to read for us this morning. Good morning, church family. My name is Sammy, and I have the privilege of reading our scripture passage this morning. Uh, but first, will you pray with me? O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Our reading today comes from Colossians two sixteen to 23. Listen to God's word. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in in restraining sensual indulgence. The word of the Lord. All right. Well, I'm a little bit offended that uh, none of my friends up on stage chose Colossians 2, 16 through 23 to use as a dedication passage for their babies this morning, but it's okay. Um, No, you chose really good ones. Uh, Good morning, church. My name is Mandy, and I am one of the pastors here on staff, and it is a pleasure to be with you all. It's fun to see so many smiling faces and friends this morning. Um, So I'm excited and eager to open up God's word with you all. Like we mentioned, we are in Colossians 2, and I want to pose a question for us this morning. I don't know about you, but there is no worse feeling for me than feeling judged or accused. Can anybody else resonate with that? Uh, I think the only thing worse than that is being judged or accused for something that you didn't do wrong, or you're not even sure what you did wrong. Uh, Allow me to illustrate this point for you. Um, My husband Jeff and I joined a softball league at Ealings Park earlier this summer. Um, We joined with some friends, some friends who are even in this room at this moment. I'm calling you out. Um, (laughs) We are a ragtag bunch of young adults who have heart and spirit, but not a lot of skill. Um, Some of us more than others. We all joined at varying skill levels and familiarity with the the game. Some of us played in high school. Some of us played t-ball, and that's about it. Um, But because we all had different skill levels, we chose to uh, join the beginner level of Elin's League. Now, Elin's has a beginner, an intermediate, and advanced league, and we, like I said, we joined the beginner level. And let me tell you, the beginner level is anything but the beginner level at Elin's. We were one of two new teams to join this summer. All the rest have been playing together for at least 5, 10, 15 years. So we're at a bit of a disadvantage. Um, 
But despite our score record, we decided to re-up for fall ball. And so we've been playing every Thursday night uh, since September. And like I said, not a great track record, but we're having fun. Uh, So that's important for you to remember because a couple weeks ago we were playing a game and we were gaining momentum. We were gaining speed. It was, it was a fun game. It was um, one of those games where we were just clicking and things were working well. And I think we were close, if not tied to the other team, if my memory serves me correct. So let me paint the scene for you. It is, I think, the third inning. Uh, we are up to bat. All of our bases are loaded. We have someone on first, second, and third base. And um, we have two outs. So... You know, stakes are high, but we're feeling good. We're feeling confident. So I'm in the dugout. I'm, like, pumped. We're all pumped, those of us who are in the dugout. And then we have some players out on the team. It's my husband Jeff's turn to go up to bat. So he walks up to the plate. We're all cheering him on. The pitcher throws the ball. Jeff connects and crack. The ball goes flying out to left field. No one's going to catch that ball. Yeah, yeah, totally. Thank you. (laughs) So the ball is flying. Everybody's like screaming. We're like, go, go, go. And, and everybody on first, second, and third starts running. And Jeff starts running towards first. But before he can even get halfway to first base, the ump starts calling, dead ball, dead ball, dead ball. And we all freeze. And we turn and look at the ump. <laughs> and he says, the girl who is on first base, she led off before the pitcher threw the ball. That's an out inning over. Thank you. Thank you. We are still not sure if this actually happens. Let me, let me point out to you. Uh, there are varying views of what happened. But my, uh, I will also say that my, my gentle, chill husband, this was perhaps the angriest I've ever seen him in our, our relationship. So that's telling you something. But I, I tell you this story because we were accused. We were judged for a misstep. And we, we didn't even know if we actually made that misstep, but we were judged and accused for something that we're not even sure we did, and we have no bitterness about it. It's okay. But um, I bring that up because today, in our passage, we're going to look at some accusations that are being hurled at the Colossian Christians. What's more, they're being called out by visitors who are judging them um, by standards that the Colossians didn't even know they needed to follow. The Christian Colossians haven't done anything wrong, and yet they stand accused. Paul is going to come in and remind them to remain firm in the faith they already have taken hold of. So, if you've been with us for a while, I'm just going to remind us where we've been. If you're new today, great. Let me give you an overview of where we've been in Colossians. The book of Colossians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. Paul has never even met the people of this church, but he has heard about them from his buddy Epaphras. Paul is writing from prison to encourage the Colossian church to remain in their faith in Christ and to warn them against turning away from the faith because of outside pressures. Paul's language, it's full of y'alls instead of singular directives to individuals. One of the main reasons that Paul is seeking to encourage this young church is because, as I said, they are a young church. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean that they were young in age, like Boaz King. What I mean is that they were young in their faith. They were new to belief in Christ, and so they were in the new infant-like stages of faith. 
The beginning of Paul's letter to the Colossians is encouraging and uplifting. In chapter 1, we see Paul overflowing with love and gratitude for the Colossians. He loves them, he labors for them, he prays for them, and he repeatedly reminds them of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. But as we make our way deeper into chapter 2, we see that Paul's tone changes from encouragement to warning. This tone shift can be noted right around 2.8 when Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. This verse marks the beginning of some warning instructions that Mike began to to unfold last week in his sermon, and we're going to see through to the end of chapter 2 today. Now, we don't know why they came through, but it's apparent from Paul's letter that some false teachers have visited the Colossian church, and they've judged them for not being religious enough. These false teachers have caused these followers of Christ to feel shaky and vulnerable in their new faith. They're not sure of where they stand. These false teachers have put thoughts in the minds of the Colossians that are causing them to wonder if their salvation in Christ is really enough. If belief in Jesus is really all that it takes to be right with God. So before we dive into our passage today, I want to give you a quick outline of our verses, verses 16 through 23. Today in our text, we're going to see the accusations that these false teachers are bringing before the Colossian church. And then we're going to see in, in the second movement, we're going to see Paul's argument, his rebuttal against those accusations. And then at the end of the passage, we're going to see Paul pose a question. He's going to ask a question to help reorient the Colossian church towards what is right. So let's begin with these false accusations. According to these false teachers, faith in Jesus Christ alone is not enough to fully save these believers at Colossae. These false teachers argued that the Colossians needed to beef up their faith, so to say, and add on a few rules and rituals. Our question here then becomes, what were these things that the Colossians were told they needed to add to their faith? Well, sprinkled throughout our passage today are a few hints as to what these things were, and you can, you can look at your text if you want to see um, some of these. But in verse 16, Paul alludes to the fact that the Colossians have fielded judgment based on what they eat and drink, and based on the fact that they have not observed religious festivals, new moon celebrations, or Sabbath days. In verse 18, Paul references that at least one of these false teachers was humbly bragging about his spiritual devoutness because he engaged in the worship of angels and he had grand spiritual visions. Lastly, in verse 21, Paul spouts off a number of commands, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. And we can assume that these are echoes of the accusations that the false teachers were bringing. So if you're looking at this list and you're thinking, what the heck is a new moon festival? Uh, Or what does it mean to engage in the worship of angels? Well, you're in good company. Let us remember that Paul is writing to the Colossian church. So this is mail for them. So the things that he is referencing in our text today, they are contextual. They belong to a time, a place, and a culture that are not our own. So the Colossians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about, but it's a little bit harder for us to unpack them. Um, To help put ourselves in the context of the church 
at Colossae. I want to borrow the words of Tim Mackey, um, the brilliant Bible Project theologian and scholar. Um, this This is an image that he uses, and these are the words that he uses to describe the image. He says, they, meaning the Colossians, were confronted with a combination of mystical polytheism along with the pressure to observe the laws of the Torah. So all these new Christians, they had grown up worshiping the various Greek and Roman gods who governed the different arenas of human life. And many simply just included Jesus as one more deity that they could worship. There was also a great pressure from the Jewish Christian community for these non-Jews to complete their commitment to the Messiah by following all of the laws found in the Torah. Specifically, he mentions eating a kosher diet, observing sacred days, and circumcision. For Paul, giving into either of these two temptations is compromise. It's a failure to grasp who Jesus really is and what he did on their behalf. So, when we look at this list of accusations brought against the Colossian church, we can assume that these rituals and observances, they're coming from different places. They could be coming from mystical polytheism. They could be coming from zealous observance of Mosaic law. They could be coming from asceticism. They're probably coming from a combination of all three. Biblical scholars are divided on where these these observances, these rituals were stemming from. However, whoever these false teachers were, in whatever spiritual or cultural influences they were drawing from, they clearly didn't think that the Colossians were truly saved by faith in Christ alone. And they certainly didn't think that the Colossians were religious or spiritual enough. So, I could preach an entire sermon on the origins and specifics of the new moon festivals and angel worship and Jewish dietary restrictions and the like. I don't think you would be very happy if I just camped there. Um, But I will say that over the past two weeks, I have read a lot of good stuff from good scholars and good commentaries um, about where these things were coming from. And I've developed some cool hypotheses of where I think they were coming from, too. So if that is what you're wanting me to engage with this morning, I would be delighted to have that conversation with you afterwards. Um, But for our purposes today, I want to spend more time focusing on Paul's gospel-based rebuttals to these accusations than to the actual specifics of what they were or where they're coming from. So one final word before we move on from this first section. As I mentioned before, Paul is writing to the Colossians. His words are contextual. However, that does not mean that his words are not also for us. I think there is a lot in here that can speak to our 21st century Western evangelical context. Whether we realize it or not, we as Christians can often try to ensure that the faith we see in others is familiar with our own experience. This gives us a feeling of legitimacy, safety, perhaps superiority. Perhaps not unlike these false teachers we've been talking about, we have our own set of spiritual customs and ideas that we subconsciously or maybe even consciously think, if someone is really saved, he or she would do A, B, and C. Things like, a good Christian always does their quiet time at 5 a.m. in the morning with a cup of coffee in their trusty recliner with worship music playing in the background. A good Christian only uses the NIV translation of the Bible. A good Christian practices believer's baptism and takes communion the way that we do it at SBCC. And a good Christian only listens to worship music, 
none of that Taylor Swift nonsense. <laughs> what? Someone said that at the nine, too, and I thought for sure it was Ken. Okay. Whatever. Sorry, sorry, high schoolers and junior hires. Um, <laughs> friends, maybe you're forming your own list in your mind right now about the ways you think a good Christian should act. Or maybe you're thinking about the ways that you yourself have been judged for not acting or looking like a good enough Christian. And if that's been your experience, I am so deeply sorry. That's not how it should be. But I do want to give you good news. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's where Paul's going to take us next. Oops. There we go. So we've looked at the accusations brought against the Colossians. And now we're going to look at Paul's argument against those accusations. Look at verse 17 with me, either in your Bible or on your phone. Uh, Paul writes this in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul is saying here, this list of rituals and spiritual practices that all these false teachers are throwing at you, those are all a shadow of the real thing. Those things are all smoke and mirrors. They are a sham All the fullness of salvation and faith is found in Christ. He is your reality. You don't need anything else. Don't let anyone judge you for standing in Christ alone. Allow me to try and illustrate this for us this morning. Um, In May of 2019, I had the gift of being able to go on a trip to Paris with my family. And if you remember, in April of 2019, that is just one month before, that's when the fire at the Notre Dame uh, occurred. And so that structurally damaged much of the church, and it was closed to the public. So my family and I, we were super bummed not only because the church was damaged, but also selfishly because we had already pre-booked a tour to go see that, the, the Notre Dame. Um, but fast forward, we still went through with the tour. We went all around Paris. It was amazing. It was a wonderful day, and we had an incredible tour guide. And at the end of the day, our tour guide pulls our group aside, pulls, pulls all of us aside, and says, listen, I know you're bummed that you didn't get to go to the Notre Dame today, but I have something better for you. I'm going to take you to the Saint-Chapelle. The Saint-Chapelle is gorgeous, and I actually think it's the most beautiful church and cathedral in all of Paris. It's my favorite. It's better than the Notre Dame, believe me. And so with an, with an intro like that, we were hooked, and we were like, take us there. We'll go. And so we went to the Saint-Chapelle, and we were met with a two-hour line in the pouring rain, But we decided to wait because we were like, this sounds like it's worth it. So we waited for two hours. Um, We waited and waited and waited. We're in the pouring rain with no umbrellas. We finally make our way through these massive wooden doors. And I was underwhelmed. (laughs) I had the room that we walked into, it was darker and smaller than I had expected and I was a little disappointed. So my family and I, we all kind of split up and went our own way. There were, there were stained glass windows. There were um, statues and some inscriptions, but nothing major. And I kind of made my way through it quickly and decided after about 10 minutes to walk back out. Now, the, the exit to the Saint-Chapelle is also its entrance. And so it's those same wooden doors that we walked through when we came in. 
So I'm half-heartedly walking out the doors when I notice that there is a spiral staircase off to the side of the doors. And because my family's still moseying, I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to see if I can go up here. I don't know if this is like restricted or what, but um, there was no one over there and I had time to kill. So I started climbing these stairs half-heartedly thinking it's probably going to lead to a closed locked door. But I walk up the stairs and I am ushered in to the most beautiful room filled with light and color and brilliance. This was the Saint-Chapelle that our tour guide was talking about. I didn't even realize that there was a second floor. <laughs> the first floor was not what she had been talking about. It was this. And I, I audibly gasped. I, I start, I, my, my eyes filled, and I was just moved by the beauty of this cathedral. And I, I tell you this story because this moment, it makes me think of what Paul is saying here in verse 17. Just like the first floor of the Saint-Chapelle was no match for the breathtaking views on its second floor, so too are the rituals of the false teachers simply mere shadows of the glory, majesty, and reality of knowing Christ. And because of this reality we have in Christ, Paul goes on to make another assertion to the Colossians in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility in the worship of angels disqualify you. At the beginning of our passage, Paul states, don't let anyone judge you. And here in 18, he goes a step further and says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Now, guess what this verb, disqualify, literally translates to in its original Greek meaning? The verb... Kata brabuo means to umpire against. I know. I know, it's so good. It's like, Holy Spirit, thank you, I love this. Okay, so this relatively rare verb looks negatively and aims to disadvantage or deprive. This wholly unpleasant verb occurs only once in the New Testament, in Colossians 2, 18. Our text today. I love this. Paul is saying, let no one umpire against you when it comes to your faith in Jesus. To ump or ref a game is to have authority, right? To have a say-so in what calls get made and which don't. But consider this. In the game of softball or baseball, an umpire is not on anyone's team. This was abundantly clear to me a few weeks ago. (laughs) The ump is there to evaluate and make judgment calls on the game. They aren't your teammate. This is what was so problematic about the false teachers in Colossae. They weren't actually on the Colossian Christians' team, which is what makes their input and their judgment so unfounded and so troublesome. Paul is adamantly emphasizing that the only one who has that kind of authority is Jesus, and he is already on their team. He is the one who gives right standing before God. He is the one who justifies and saves. He is the one who gets to call the shots, not those who put on false humility and claim to have false authority. Paul goes on to argue that, in fact, it is those false teachers with their false humility and authority, it is they who have lost sight of reality. He points this out in verse 19. He says, "...they have lost connection with the head." from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. 
Now, if you've been with us in Colossians for a while now, you shouldn't be surprised by Paul's language here. He has talked about Christ's headship again and again. In Colossians 1.18, he wrote, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Then, in 2.10, Paul writes, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And here, in 2.19, Paul is saying Christ is the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Christ's headship flips the hollow accusations of the false teachers on their heads. By claiming that they hold the spiritual keys to authority, these false teachers have proven that they are completely disconnected to the source of authority himself. So let's recap the flow of Paul's argument here in verses 17 through 19. Paul has said, Because Christ is your only true reality, no one has the power to umpire against you. Except for him who is the source and head of all growth in spiritual realities. Paul has built an airtight rebuttal against the hapless visitors of the church at Colossae. The bases are loaded, and he's going to bring us home. So look at verses 20 through 23 with me. Paul writes, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, I like to think of Paul's words here as his, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed moment. Young people in the room, have you ever been the recipients of that kind of rhetoric? I will call myself out and say that I have said that to some of you in this very room, and I'm not sorry. I, I stand by it. Because, because of this, let me tell you why. Because I think a lot of times those words, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, I think we, we equate them with shame. But the way I equate them here is with love. I think it's more like this. I love you so much that I actually take no delight in being angry with you. I see the man or the woman that you are called to be, and I want that for you. This isn't you. This isn't for you. I know that you are capable of more. I believe that that is the same tone that Paul is adopting with the Colossian church. It's as if he's saying, why settle for living on the first floor of the Saint-Chapelle when you could live on its second why, when you were meant to live more freely and more fully in Christ, are you settling for this, this trash that these false teachers are offering you? In essence, Paul is saying, if you live according to arbitrary human rules and codes, then you're really just acting as an umpire against yourself. He asks, do you want to live like that? And I believe that Paul's question here is an invitation an invitation for the Colossian church and for us today to reorient ourselves to the abundant life that Jesus has already offered. So, 
We've covered a lot this morning. These verses are dense, and there is so much great application to be pulled from today's text. Ken wrote an excellent home group study this week on the, the theme of legalism that runs through this passage, and that is so apparent in today's text. But as I was sitting with God's word and just reading it over and over again this week, I I came across two other points of application that I want to share with you this morning, and I want to share them in the form of two more questions. So my first question for us this morning is this. Do I personally know the Good Shepherd's voice? The Colossians felt unsteady in their faith because they weren't fully relying on the testimony that had been given to them in Jesus Christ. And similarly, we will always feel shaky in our own faith unless we are personally in relationship with Jesus, our good shepherd. In John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Friends, have you stepped into the security of that promise today? When we believe in him, abide in him, remain in him, the voice of Jesus reassures us that we have right standing with him. We each individually have a call and a responsibility to hold fast to Christ. Young folks in the room, it's not enough to just coast on your parents' faith and not develop a personal relationship with Jesus on your own. In adults in the room, it's not enough for us to just attend home group and in Sundays, and rely on that as, as the main stuff of our faith. Those things are well and good, but it's not enough. If our attendance is all we're relying on, and we're not giving time to marinate in a personal, vibrant relationship with Jesus, then it's all just smoke and mirrors. When we each truly sit with Jesus, when we soak in his word, when we spend time talking with him every day like a friend, when we carve out time to listen to the, his, the still small voice of the Spirit, then it becomes easier for us to distinguish the hollow voices that surround us every day, to call out the things that aren't true and aren't good and aren't pure and aren't noble, to say, this doesn't sound like the voice of Jesus, so I'm not going to listen to it. Knowing the Good Shepherd personally gives us confidence before him, and nothing and no one can snatch that away from us. And so I'll ask again, do you know his voice? My second and last question for us today is also a charge, and it's this. Are we going to be a church of umpires or a church of third-base coaches? As I mentioned before, an umpire is someone who is on the field purely to evaluate the game and make judgment calls. He or she is not a member of either team that's playing. A third base coach, however, is someone who is on your team. When your team is at bat, the third base coach stands just behind the third base bag and communicates to both batters and base runners. The third base coach is responsible for telling base runners, keep running, keep running, keep running, or whoa, 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 stop, (laughs) don't keep going. Um, The third base coach offers perspective, accountability, communication to their entire team. Now, friends, as members of one body, we get to be on the same team together. In submitting to our mutual head, Christ Jesus, we share a common coach, a common goal, a common end game. That gives us the opportunity to be third 
third base coaches for one another, to look out for one another, to offer perspective and accountability, to communicate in love, and to call one another towards home. When that umpire called my team out a few weeks ago, I felt angry, confused, upset, because I knew he wasn't on my team. He wasn't for me. But when Drake Khan is my third base coach, you better believe I am filled with great thankfulness for him because I can trust in him. He offers me perspective that I may not have, and I always know he's got my back. He's got our team's best interests in mind. Friends, I am far more interested in being part of a church that calls each other up rather than calling each other out. Calling out is steeped in judgment and accusation, while calling up is born out of love, compassion, and goodwill. What does that look like? That looks like being more concerned with demonstrating love to one another than being right about shadow things. That looks like being the first one to offer help and support to those who are hurting among us. That looks like we, Christ Church, being the safest place for someone to fail, to fall down, to strike out, and get back up again. Church, we are on the same team. What good news. We get to link arms as brothers and sisters in Christ and look out for one another as we each strive to remain closely connected to him, our reality, our source, our mutual head. When we are third-base coaches for each other instead of umpires, then we can humbly join in with the words of the author of Hebrews and say, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses— Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for us this morning is that we would each personally know the voice of the Good Shepherd, and that we would love and spur one another on as one body, as one team living to the fullest in him. May it be so. Well, week by week, we share in a meal that reminds us that the only one who has the right to, uh, the only one that has the right to condemn us chose mercy instead. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. In partaking in this meal, friends, we relish in the redemption and right standing we have before God because of his son, Jesus. It is Jesus who alone holds all authority, all power. He alone can offer us true reality. So I invite you to come join in this meal. There will be prayer teams on the right and on the left who would love to pray with you about anything and everything. We are all on the same team. Let's take this meal together with grateful hearts.